Well, good morning. So let me see if I have this right. If uh, next Sunday is Easter, then that would make today Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday being that, uh, that day that the church traditionally remembers and celebrates Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem just a matter of days before his crucifixion. This event, though we may not always mark it or often think of it, yet it is important enough that it is one of just a handful of incidents that are recorded in all four of the gospel accounts. And that puts the triumphal entry alongside some uh, pretty supremely important events, you know, like the crucifixion and the resurrection. And that might make you wonder, well, what exactly is so important about that day? Well, I think it might be this. If you look at the gospel accounts, you look at Jesus and his interactions with the crowds. Really, it is that Sunday during the triumphal entry that seems to be the only time that the crowds acknowledge just who Jesus is and just how worthy he is of receiving all of our worship and our adoration. And yet, really, this crowd that cheered for Jesus and who called him their king, it's pretty clear they did not yet understand what it was that he was about to do for them. Certainly, they did not comprehend what it meant that Jesus was God's Messiah. My hope is that this morning, it will be different for us, that this morning, all of us will very clearly see and will truly understand exactly who Jesus is and what it is that he's done for us and why it is that that matters more than absolutely everything else. I pray that you and I, we will uh, see and understand not just uh, the history of what happened, not just the reality that these things really did take place, but also I pray that we will comprehend the impact and the value and the importance of the death of Jesus, the Messiah, upon the cross for us personally and individually. I pray that each and every one of us will grasp that Jesus died in our place and for our sin. You know, part of understanding all of that is coming to the settled realization that Jesus, the God in human flesh, that he died on the cross on purpose. He meant to do that. Uh, the crucifixion of Jesus is not some sort of historical tragedy, some, uh, some terrible thing that should have never happened. Rather, it was God's rescue plan. It was his willing payment. Uh, Jesus wasn't tricked. He wasn't trapped. His whole life was aimed at that very moment. Because of his great love for us, he willingly and he intentionally chose the cross. His life was not taken from him. He graciously gave his life 
so that we might have the opportunity to exchange our sin for his righteousness and our punishment for his reward. Jesus put on human flesh specifically so that on that day he could be nailed to the cross and die in our place. So Jesus chose to give up his life. Here's what I mean when I say that. You and I, you and I, because we've sinned, one day we will have to die. Oh, we might be able to choose uh, the moment of our death is stepping in front of a train or a bullet to save someone else. I don't know how you'd step in front of a train to save someone, but it sounded good in the moment. <laughs> but here's the, the fact, as Romans 6.23 makes clear, the wages or the consequence or the result of sin is death. But you see, Jesus didn't have to die because Jesus never sinned. That's what Paul's talking about in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where he describes Jesus as the one who did not know sin, the one who had never sinned. Understand this, Jesus did not have to experience death. Death had no claim upon him. That is why Jesus says it the way that he says it in John 10, 17 and 18. In speaking of his death, he says, I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own. Likewise, in the account of his death in Matthew 27, 50, we read that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice. And then it says, and gave up his spirit. He had to give it up. It was not taken from him. Understand this. Jesus was not killed. He gave up his life. Death had no power over him. Jesus chose death. He chose it in order to take our sin and its penalty upon himself. He willingly surrendered himself to death in our place. That's what Paul's talking about back again in 2 Corinthians 5.21. There he says that God made the one who did not know sin, Jesus, to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus gave himself, understand this, as a sacrifice, as a sacrifice in our place and for our sin. Well, let's take a quick look at what took place that day, uh, that day of Jesus's triumphal entry, as it's described in Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 29. Uh, so grab your Bible, uh, find Luke chapter 19. Uh, we're going to begin partway through the chapter in verse 29. And that of respect for God's word, will you do this? Will you stand with me? I'll read. I encourage you to follow along. <laughs> Again, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 29. Here's what it says. Speaking of Jesus, as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples and said, go into the village ahead of you. As you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. 
And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So uh, those who were sent left and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? The Lord needs it, they said. And then they brought it to Jesus. After throwing their clothes on the colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they were spreading their clothes on the road. Now he came to the path down the Mount of Olives. And the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles that they had seen. Here's what they were crying out. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. As he approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day what would bring you peace, but it is hidden from your eyes. Let's pray. Father, I pray for us that this morning it would not be hidden from our eyes. And I pray that you would open our eyes open the comprehension of our minds, open the eyes of our heart that we might see what it is that you have chosen to do for us. God, I pray that this morning we would not only understand, but we would respond. God, that we would be changed because we know that our God loves us and that he has redeemed us. Help us to see clearly, Lord. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. There's just so much that uh, we could focus on uh, within this passage, but this morning, more than anything else, uh, my hope is that each of us will see that Jesus went to the cross as a willing sacrifice for our sin. Now, we're, we're picking up here with Luke's account. Uh, Jesus has begun to face some rather vicious opposition from the Jewish religious leaders who are actually at this point uh, literally plotting his murder. And yet, even though Jesus could have very easily eluded their grasp by simply staying away from Jerusalem, uh, nonetheless, Jesus has made a very public journey, traveling along with the crowds all the way from Galilee, and now he is going to make a, a rather a spectacle of an entrance into Jerusalem itself. Where we pick up, Jesus and his followers are walking along the road to Jerusalem amidst the uh, overflowing crowds that are coming for Passover. Because of Passover, the city would be full of people. People from all over Israel, really from all over the world, and all having come to remember and to celebrate God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt so very many years before. And so, first and foremost, upon all of their minds would have been this. 
it would have been the fact that at Passover, a faultless lamb would be offered. They would take it to the priest and he would slaughter it. Just as they had done so many years before in Egypt, they would do again that Passover and the spotless lamb would then die in their place and as their substitute, its blood would be shed so that they might live. That's what they were thinking about as they were approaching Passover. And that's what Jesus was doing as he came to Passover. Jesus, the one whom John the Baptist called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He was coming at Passover to offer himself as the true sacrifice on behalf of all people. Now, Jesus does something here in our passage that seems to me to be done simply to show us that all that was about to take place over the next days it was all a part of his plan. Uh, Jesus was showing us that, uh, that he wasn't merely a victim of the religious leader's evil plot. He wasn't just being swept along by the enthusiasm of the crowds. But no, this was his plan. Uh, look at verse 29. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany, th those are two villages located on the uh, on the far side of the Mount of Olives from Jerusalem. So uh, they are just coming up on the back side of this hill. And, and when they arrive there, he tells two of his disciples to go ahead into one of those villages and telling them, as you enter, you will find a colt, a, a young donkey tied there on which no one has ever sat and they are instructed that they are to untie this donkey that does not belong to them and they are to begin walking away with it and if anyone asks them why are you untying it they are simply to say well the Lord needs it I don't know how that would work in our day but it seemed to go okay for them and so those who were sent left and found it just as he told them but what I find odd here is that after having climbed the long, steep, sun-baked, arduous road from Jericho up to Jerusalem, as Jesus nears Jerusalem, it's, it's just over the next hill now, he's almost there, and yet it's now that Jesus, instead of simply finishing out the journey on foot, he chooses to stop and to wait and to send two of his disciples to fetch a young donkey for him to ride uh, for the last little bit of this journey. Now, whether the acquisition of the donkey was something uh, miraculous or something that Jesus had simply arranged uh, during a previous visit to Jerusalem, I don't know. I think the more telling and the more interesting question is this. Why in the world would Jesus switch to riding a donkey when the journey was practically over? Uh, the answer, I think, is that he was making a statement. He was making a statement by entering the city while riding upon a donkey it was a way for Jesus to communicate uh, that what he was doing and, and, and exactly why it was that he had come to Jerusalem. You see, culturally, uh, entering on a donkey was a picture of a king coming into the city 
in a time of peace. Uh, think back to Solomon when he was made king by David. Uh, there in the book of 1 Kings, we read that uh, David gave him his mule, the king's mule, to ride upon through the city because Solomon was, was taking his father's kingdom peacefully. Uh, certainly a conquering king would come differently. A conquering king would come with an army and riding a war horse or a chariot. And by the way, one day Jesus will come in that manner. But here Jesus comes in gentleness and he comes in peace. He comes exactly the way that the prophet Zechariah foretold hundreds of years before that he would come. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 reads, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, daughter Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He is righteous and victorious, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. And so we read in verse 35 that after throwing their clothes on this colt, they helped Jesus get on it. And as he was going along, they spread their clothes upon the road. And as they came uh, to the path down the Mount of Olives, descending towards the city, uh, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully uh, with a loud voice because of all the miracles that they'd seen. And here's what they were shouting. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory to the highest heaven. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem like a king who is entering his kingdom. Jesus was openly and clearly proclaiming himself to be God's Messiah. Not a victim, not one who is swept along by the crowd, but the king who was in control. The crowds, the crowds uh, who are, are praising him. They are the ones who had been with Jesus in Galilee. They'd listened to him teach. They'd seen him heal the lepers and the lame and the blind and the sick. They had eaten the multiplied fish and bread. They had witnessed it when Jesus had raised Lazarus and others from the grave. And so the crowds began to worship God to give thanks for all that they had seen. And yet, the truth of it is this, Jesus had not yet done the greatest thing. He had not yet done the very thing that he had come to do. Think back for a minute to that very first Passover. That very first Passover where Moses instructed every faithful Jewish family to take a faultless lamb and to bring it into their home to live with them in the house. As the law instructs in, in Exodus chapter 12, in verse 3, we read this, On the twelfth day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to their father's family, one animal per family. And then in verse 4, it says, You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it either from the sheep or the goats, and you are to keep it. They're to keep it in the house with them until the 14th day and then slaughter them at twilight. 
So for five days, this perfect little lamb was to be with them where they could see its perfection and so that they might feel the full cost of its sacrifice. So too Jesus would be with his people in Jerusalem for the next five days, teaching in the temple, healing the sick, preparing his disciples so that they might see his perfection. And then at Passover, he would offer himself as the ultimate Passover lamb. That's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul refers to Jesus as our <laughs> Passover lamb. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. You see, Jesus came to Jerusalem and he came specifically at the time of Passover in order that he might be crucified at Passover so that we might see that he is our ultimate sacrifice, our ultimate Passover lamb. Now, if you don't remember the story behind the Passover and what it's all about, let me remind you very briefly. Uh, clear back in the book of Genesis, uh, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, uh, he, his son Joseph uh, welcomes all of his brothers, all of the children of Israel to join him in Egypt as refugees from a terrible famine. Remember all of that? But then after many decades and a change of pharaohs, uh, the Jews were demoted to being a class of slaves who served the Egyptian pharaohs, uh, doing backbreaking labor and suffering terrible abuses. But God saw and heard his people's distress. And so he sent Moses to them to demand their release from Pharaoh. But Pharaoh refused to heed God's command. So God sent one devastating plague after another upon Egypt, giving them a chance after chance to relent and to release his people, the Israelites. And then finally, when they had said no to God one last time, God sent the last and the most terrible of the ten plagues. And in one night, all of the Egyptians' firstborn males died. But God spared his people. He passed over their homes, that's hence the name. And those who had slaughtered a perfect lamb and put its blood upon the doorposts, the angel of death passed over those homes. Because you see, for them, that spotless lamb had died in the place of that home's firstborn son. And that's what they had come to celebrate, all of this crowd. They come to celebrate the festival of Passover that served as a reminder to them of two main things. First, it reminded all of Israel of their need to be rescued from slavery. They had been historically uh, living in a situation that could have only ended in their death and they were helpless. They were unable to free themselves. Secondly, Passover reminded them of God's faithfulness to rescue them and not through their efforts and not because they deserved, but rather 
through the lamb's substitutionary death, they were redeemed out of slavery. And that's uh, what Passover was all about. And clearly, Passover is a beautiful picture, is it not? Of our Savior Jesus, of our Passover lamb. Jesus, the lamb that was slain as a substitute, he, he who was perfectly spotless died for us who are guilty. He redeemed us from slavery to sin that led nowhere but to our death. And he takes us out of that slavery and into the land of promise. Passovers are a reminder, first of all, that all of us need to be rescued from sin. And that apart from Christ, our sin separates us from God. And that we are hopeless and helpless, unable to free ourselves. Secondly, Passover serves as a reminder for us of the unfailing faithfulness of our God to rescue us. And not because of our efforts, not because we deserve it, but because of his grace. Just as the Jews there in Egypt were helpless slaves, so too you and I, uh, we find ourselves enslaved to sin. Uh, the gospel tells us clearly uh, that we are all sinners. Romans 3.23 uh, makes it very clear. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Add to that what Jesus says uh, about our slavery to sin. In John 8, 34, Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Yeah, so if all have sinned and all who sin are slaves to sin, that leaves us all in the same boat of being helpless to free ourselves. We are all enslaved to sin. Passover and the gospel both tell us that the only road to freedom is through a substitute. The Passover gives us the perfect sacrificial lamb and the gospel gives us Jesus, who according to 1 Peter 3.18, suffered for sins once for all, the righteous, the perfect one, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God. Both Passover and the gospel require the shedding of blood, a metaphor of death, of uh, one life being given in exchange for another. At the Passover, it was the slaughter of the spotless sacrificial lamb so that the firstborn son could live. And for us, it is our Jesus who willingly, purposefully, sacrificed himself, gave up his life, shed his blood to pay for our sin. As he explains it in Matthew 26, 28, he says, this is my blood of the covenant which was poured out for many. Why? For the forgiveness of sins. That's what it's all about. That's what we need to understand. Think for a moment what Jesus says at the end of our passage for this morning. Uh, back in Luke 19, there at the close in verse 42, uh, what was it that Jesus was wishing 
uh, that the crowds there would understand? What was it that, uh, that causes our Lord to weep there on the slopes of the Mount of Olives? What was it that Jesus was talking about when he says, if you knew this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. What is it that could have brought them peace? Well, it's the message of the Passover. It's the message of the gospel. It's understanding and responding to the redeeming work of Jesus. The message of Passover and the message of the gospel are the same. We are sinners, all of us. And the consequence of our sin is death. But God in his great mercy has given us a substitute. The Lamb of God. Jesus, our Savior. Do you see it? Do you see it? Are you ready to begin to boldly declare his goodness and his faithfulness? Are you ready to worship him? Are you ready to, to call him Lord? I pray that you and I, that we will do better than the crowds uh, did on the day of Jesus' triumphal entry. I pray that we will uh, do more than just sing his praise and acknowledge his worth in the moment. I pray that you and I, that we will go away changed undeniably altered, irrevocably transformed. I pray that instead of just reaching an intellectual ascent or merely having some sort of emotional experience, I pray that God will take our emotion and that he will take our intellect and by the work of his spirit, he will reshape and renew and redeem them so that we will go out from here changed and living as people who are truly changed. I can't think of a better way for us to ponder these things, to slow down and to really consider them, to allow them to impact our minds and our hearts than how we will do this morning as we take time to celebrate communion together. You know, it was just a few days after this grand entry into Jerusalem that we've just read about, and it was just a matter of hours before Jesus would be arrested and uh, gathered, that he gathered with his disciples uh, to celebrate that Passover dinner together, and as they shared in that traditional meal and celebrated God's faithfulness to redeem them, that Jesus, in the midst of all of that, took bread, giving thanks, gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Here, Jesus, just before he goes to the cross, he calls his disciples, those who would be his followers, to remember what it is that he would accomplish for them. To remember what it was that he would do by taking bread and partaking of it. We read that in the same way he also took the cup. 
And after supper, he said, this cup is the new covenant, the new promise of my blood, which is poured out for you. Jesus wants his followers to remember, to understand, to comprehend his sacrifice. He puts the cross, he puts his death into the context of the Passover because he wants us to understand it in that context. That he is our substitute and that by his death we have been redeemed. And that's what we're going to remember this morning. I'm going to invite the team to come on up. And as they lead us in worship, if you belong to Jesus, then this is for you. And we invite you to join us in it and to come up and uh, to take one of the pairs of cups. You, you know how this works. In the bottom cup, there's a, a nugget of bread. In the, in the top cup, a swallow of the juice. But this is about far more than bread and juice. It's an opportunity for you as you return to your seat to thank the Lord to remember, to acknowledge what it is that he has done, that he has redeemed you, that he has purchased you, that he willingly gave himself as a sacrifice for you. You belong to him. You have been, you have been cleansed by him, even if you're a bass player. <laughs> because I want you to know that, that the blood of Jesus is strong enough for anyone, and if it's strong enough for Eric, it's good for all of us. <laughs> I am capable of ruining any moment. Obviously, I am too. <laughs> Let's focus our minds. Let's turn our hearts to the significance of what he's done. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, to reflect upon what it is that you have done. God, it is not a theological concept. It's reality that you have bought us. You have redeemed us out of sin. You have freed us to live in your love and your grace in the power of your spirit. God, I pray that we would remember that this morning. And that, God, we would go away changed by that truth. We pray it all in Jesus' name.